You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Villingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Security Unlocked. Before we dive into what we're covering on today's episode, I hear Nick has some big news for us. So Nick, what's what's going on? What's the big news? Yes, hello, Natalia. Hello, listeners. I have got a new job. I am staying at Microsoft. Uh, I'm not leaving Microsoft, but I am moving over to the team that supports the MSRC, the Microsoft Security Response Center. I'm going to help them with working on things like the Blue Hat security event, working with security researchers, uh, helping them with their bug bounty programs, uh, hopefully doing some some cool things, maybe even in the podcasting space. But it means Security Unlocked is actually going on pause, on hiatus. This is going to be my last episode, maybe forever, may, maybe not forever, but certainly for a little while, while the, the team behind the scenes decide what to, to do next and how to uh, evolve Security Unlocked. So it's sort of bittersweet. I'm excited for this new job and doing some cool stuff with the MSRC team, but it does mean that the podcast is going on hiatus. And Natalia, a big, massive thank you to you for being my co-host and partner in crime and for the hundreds of thousands of podcast minutes that we've we've recorded, <laughs> uh, you know, several hundred of which have probably made it to a final cut, but it's been wonderful. Thanks, uh, thanks for all the fish and make sure to bring your towel or whatever Douglas Adams says. <laughs> Well, first of all, congratulations, Nick. This is an awesome opportunity and the MSRC is super lucky to have you. And of course, I will miss you on the show. I think our entire audience will, but you know, it's been just such a great run, 58 episodes. I think we said it at the beginning of all of the early episodes. We just couldn't believe how much this took off. And now here we are at 58 episodes. Since you might be doing your last episode right now. Do you want to do the honors of introducing the topic for today? I would love to. On today's episode, we talk about defending against crypto jacking with Microsoft Defender for Endpoint and Intel TDT. We are uh, very lucky to have representatives from both the Microsoft Defender for Endpoint team and the Intel TDT team. And we sort of go back to first principles. What is cryptocurrency? What is crypto mining? And then what is crypto jacking? How do these two pieces of technology work together to identify things like crypto jacking? And then what's happened since this blog was published, which was actually back in April of 2021, for that technology to evolve to the point where it can now detect things like ransomware on the endpoints and how they're using machine learning to try and detect malicious activity on on endpoints through the, the sort of silicon stack talking to Defender, looking for dodgy stuff. It's a great episode. I think folks will really enjoy it. And it's a, it's a fitting one for, uh, for us to go out on our hiatus for, I think. I think so too. And I think with that, on with the pod. On with the pod. I've always wanted to sing that. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. And welcome to our special guests, Samit Rajit and Raul. 
Now, you're both here joining us today to talk about a very interesting topic. There was a recent blog released that was called Defending Against Cryptojacking with Microsoft Defender Friendpoint and Intel TDT. As soon as Nick and I read it, we knew we wanted to talk to both of you about the content and about the future of this technology. So welcome, welcome. Why don't we start with some brief introductions? So I'll start with you, Amit Rajit. Could you tell us about your role at Microsoft and how it relates to this blog? Sure. So I've been in Microsoft for like close to five years now, but I've had an extensive career with different types of anti-malware products in the past as well. So for the past couple of years, I've been working with the hardware security team, and we are trying to bring out something which is hardware-based security and sensors for Microsoft Defender. And we have been collaborating closely with uh, Rahul's team in Intel. Well, Intel, of course, owns the silicon and then, you know, kind of, you know, to see how we could get a more deeper introspection technique inside Windows Defender, which is based off hardware. Great. Thank you. And Rahul, would you mind introducing yourself as well? Absolutely. So I'm Rahul Ghosh, and I'm a senior security architect in Intel's Product Assurance and Security Group, IPaaS in short. And I've been working for more than 15 years as a security architect in multiple areas of trusted computing. I've been designing and leading teams in deploying security products in identity, end-to-end authentication, secure biometrics, and now runtime threat detection. I'm currently the lead architect for Intel's threat detection technology and uh, been uh, very much involved with Amit uh, on this collaboration with Microsoft Department of Point and TDT to bring next-gen security technologies to our customers. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time and, and being with us on the podcast today. So as Natalia mentioned, uh, the, the sort of the genesis of today's episode is actually from a blog that was published in uh, in April of 2021, which feels like a decade ago, but it's, it's really not that not that long ago. Initially, that was focusing on crypto jacking and the relationship between Microsoft Defender for Endpoint and Intel TDT. I understand since that blog has come out, the the ability for these two pieces of technology to, to work together and, and do other interesting things in the security space has expanded, and we'll get to that later on in the conversation. Let's maybe start with some taxonomy definition that we're going to, you know, some of the words we're going to use in today's conversation. Maybe we could start with crypto mining and then perhaps how that relates to this, this concept of crypto jacking. We have covered it on the podcast in the past, but let's go back to the basics. So Amit, maybe if I could start with you, help us uh, wrap our head around uh, crypto mining. What, what, what is that if we've been living in a cave and, and don't know what that is? All right. All right. So the crypto mining is essentially a process where several cryptocurrencies use to generate new coins and verify the transactions. Now, what involves here is that a huge decentralized network of computers around the world that verify and secure something they call virtual ledgers that document cryptocurrency transactions. These transactions are also known as blockchains. So what happens in mining is that in return, these computers who are you know, recording the ledgers and the computers that are uh, computing the hashes are rewarded with new coins by the ledger keepers. The miners maintain the secure blockchain and the blockchain awards the coins. These coins provide the incentive for the miners to maintain the blockchain. Now, if you have heard about you know, cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, this is a cryptocurrency that uses something like a blockchain. Got it. And so... Those of us watching the news, listening to the news, reading reading the news, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, they're all 
you know, rising to the top of, of the headlines. Is crypto mining involved in all of these technologies or is it sort of just a, a subset? First of all, different networks of cryptocurrencies use different type of uh, techniques. Like the Bitcoin network is different from the Ethereum network. And so they would use a different techniques to mine. When Bitcoin was, you know, invented, it did not include things like NFTs and other things. Whereas the Ethereum platform was designed to kind of expand on the concept of blockchains to come up with more what should I say, innovative uses of it. And NFT, which is a non-fungible token, is kind of the invention there. It's basically the idea that one can create art or something based on the digital network or digital backbone and then can sell that. And that art is unique, just like the coins which we mine because they're based off of the same backbone of the crypto. So that's where kind of the similarities between the NFT and the actual coins, the currency ends and things diversify. We're talking about metaverse here and people are these days using it to buy virtual property inside the metaverse and just using the same concept of an NFT. Yeah, thank you for, for that uh, description and then the distinction between you know, NFTs and, and cryptocurrencies. The reason I asked the question is because I'd like to follow this thread here and now talk about crypto jacking. And as you sort of explain crypto jacking, I'd love some sort of additional context here. What does the, the word jacking mean? What are we jacking? What's being stolen? And is that applicable across all of this new sort of cryptocurrency space, including things like NFTs, or is it specific to just a subset? So I guess my question is, help us understand crypto jacking. And then if you could help us understand what is potentially being jacked <laughs> for those of us that are reading about NFTs and different kinds of cryptocurrency being created every day. Yes, actually, it may help to understand a bit about uh, the history of crypto mining and why that can lead to these, this new concept of crypto jacking. And uh, in general, uh, it's well, very well known that uh, Bitcoin, the first well-known cryptocurrency came out in 2009, introduced a blockchain that Namit just uh, explained so nicely. And uh, one of the central tenets of the blockchain is that it's an open and public database. And every transaction related to the cryptocurrency is going to be logged into that blockchain as blocks. Now, how do you get a block added to the blockchain? And that process is essentially the verification of a mathematical process, a puzzle known as the proof of work. Its essence is a complex set of hash functions that crypto miners will need to use CPU power to compute. And when a particular crypto miner computes and verifies a particular hash that leads to the addition of a block to the blockchain, they get paid in fractions of the cryptocurrency. So miners are thus actually also competing with each other to be the first to verify the blocks and be responsible for that getting added to the chain and then they get paid. So the more they mine and the faster they mine, the more they are rewarded with cryptocurrencies. That's actually a very important concept. You can crypto mine you can create new currencies while making a little bit of the same currency. And that's why the lucrativeness of the cryptocurrency or crypto mining has come into the forefront. Now it can really add to this. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, thanks, Raul. Yeah, so as you see that it is really, really expensive to, to, to mine. And, and Bitcoin, when it was introduced in the past, has a specific number of Bitcoins that can be mined. That number cannot be changed, which means that as more and more people mine it, the availability of that, of that resource depletes. And so it takes more and more computing resources, compute heavy resources to do that. And since it, there is a resource which I do not have, maybe 
I would like to, you know, maybe outsource it. And that's where crypto jacking, jacking comes in. Like it is the illegal use of an unsuspecting victim's CPU power and computing resources to mine cryptocurrencies or steal cryptocurrency wallets. So it came into focus actually when, in, I think in 2017-ish, with the release of easy-to-deploy JavaScript-based crypto mining code by websites like, I think, CoinHive, if I remember correctly. Mining code could be easily embedded in websites and run in the background as of the victims inside the victim's computers. And then when the vict victim would go into those malicious websites, those codes would get downloaded and automatically run in the background without their knowledge. So it has since then proliferated as a file-based malware as well, deployed through standard methods like you know, malicious emails or social injuring and the types. And with popular currencies like Monero adapting their proof of work algorithms to be JavaScript unfriendly, File-based crypto miners written in languages like C, C++, Go, and the rest are fast becoming more and more popular than web-based mining. So once deployed, either via browsers or file-based, the miners keep running in the background, utilizing the CPU and network resources with the victim not having any knowledge of the attack. And that's the crucial part. You know, the victim may notice their systems being slower or maybe running a bit hotter, but they actually don't know what's happening and they don't know that their CPUs are being used for the benefit of somebody else who's making money out of them. You know, it sounds like the oil industry, it's a finite resource. The more it's consumed, the harder it is to get. I would love to learn more about the progression of crypto jacking. At the beginning of crypto and crypto mining, anybody could mine. It was a lot easier. Plenty of people are still looking for the hard drives that they used when they first started mining. Now, it's harder for an individual to do it, like you said, because you need so much more power. So organizations are actually mining rather than individuals. Is this part of the reason why crypto jacking is a threat today, this competitive landscape for crypto mining? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, so as Amit mentioned, uh, Bitcoin is just one of them, right? Of course, it's getting harder and harder to mine Bitcoins. The other thing that has happened is a uh, lot of these crypto mining farms that you just talked about earlier mm -hmm. are based are essentially ASIC-based farms. So there are specific kinds of silicon that they've created that is meant for only one thing, to mine that cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency, uh, the, the managers of these currencies are aware of that. And there are actually new currencies that have come out. Monero is a great example. Who so are trying to make their the algorithm, the proof of work algorithms more ASIC unfriendly, more JavaScript unfriendly. So that means that you can't just set up a lot of these farms anymore to mine them, which means that you need more general purpose computing. You need more CPUs, more servers to work with. And now getting that many of them is very expensive. And so that has actually led to this concept that if I can't buy them all myself, then mm -hmm. let me see if I can just take over somebody else's. They don't know any better, as I just mentioned. And I am being able to run in the background on the computing platforms meant for those cryptocurrencies and uh, make money without uh, any investment on my side. So essentially, that, that, that concept that uh, since creating these farms is so expensive, buying this equipment is so expensive, mm -hmm. but I need all this power, just decentralize, combine as many CPUs as possible, doesn't have to be my own. As long as I can infect them, it'll be running forever. 
And so it really took off in 2017 and quadrupled mm. in 2018. And it will be there for some time to come as long as there is cryptocurrencies who have reasonable value. Which brings me to my next question. So how prevalent is crypto jacking? Who and how many people are exposed to this threat? You know, should I be worried? Should our listeners be worried about their personal laptops when it comes to crypto jacking? So it's important to understand that the actual concept of mining is not illegal. I can, if I own the resource, which is a computing resource, I can do whatever I want with and I can mine. And there are legitimate ways of using it. It becomes a problem when I'm using somebody else's resources. And that's mm -hmm. why it is very hard to determine whether a resource is being used with consent or without consent. So, you know, you imagine that, you know, you don't even know that your computer is being used for something and you have paid for the computer. And then when you wanted to use it for something, you just can't. And that essentially, how does an anti-malware software determine the legitimacy of that? And that's why it's, it's, it's extremely, extremely hard to pinpoint this on how many people are exposed to it. But we have some data, but, you know, it says that there's a significant amount of people are actually infected with some kind of, you know, software that's doing you know, this kind of mining on their computer without their knowledge. It's difficult because some of them can be very drive-by. They go to a malicious site and while they're on it, it's getting used for mining. So it's not always necessary for you to be perpetually infected. You can be partially mm -hmm. infected from time to time, especially if there's a popular site you go to a lot of times, only for part of the time you are mining. Or even if you have been through social engineering, made to download something that's running in the background. It doesn't have to run all the time. So it makes it difficult to pinpoint numbers, but because of the, the hiddenness of this attack, especially worrisome, not only to consumers that like a home PCs, but especially in the enterprise where all connected systems can lead to proliferation of, the, of a particular attack and it's running across the fleet and you not knowing the IT administrator, not knowing any better, just because none of their own resources are noticeably getting touched. So the attack possibilities are very real, and what makes it worrisome is being attacked and not even knowing we are attacked. Correct. You know, I'm just, I'd just like to add to this that, you know, we, we get uh, so much, you know, information about ransomware and, and, you know, attack techniques based on that. But even though they get the headlines, crypto jacking attacks are still very much there, and I would call them as endemic attacks. And in the recent in a computing landscape across client servers and devices meant for the Internet of Things, which is the IoT, due to the low risk yet high sustained rewards associated with them, these are you know, prime targets for being used as crypto jacking. It sounds like the problem statement here is that an endpoint piece of computing hardware could be taken over for crypto mining and, and that be not at the, the decision and control of the user, so unbeknownst to the user, and this is in part what crypto jacking is. So what are the technologies that exist to help to identify crypto jacking and make sure that that doesn't happen? We're going to talk about TDT, Intel TDT. We're going to talk about Microsoft Defender and then the relationship between the two. Before we jump into those specific products, though, I wondered, is there a is there a lead in here to talk about, well, okay, so what are some of the more general techniques that can be used to identify uh, crypto jacking? I wonder, Rahul, if we could start with you, maybe start at the silicon layer, and then we could maybe talk about the, the, the OS or sort of the, the higher level software layer above that. Actually, it would help to first understand uh, why it is difficult in general to detect crypto miners. And 
how they can hide and what are the techniques that are being generally used to detect them. And uh, Amit from the defender side can help lead into this and why silicon-based silicon detection is an uh, important way to eventually figure these things out. The goal of silicon-based detection really is to go beyond all the signals that we just talked about, any signals that they that is available from the operating environment. Let's get beyond that, go beyond the trodden path, go beyond the, any hiding techniques, obfuscation techniques that is already well-known to the attackers uh, to hide themselves from the operating environment. When we say silicon-based, uh, I'm really referring to the use of data that we can derive directly from the CPUs, from within entities, from IP blocks that are built into the CPU, and use that to implement the malware detection logic. We make the SOC or the CPU inherently involved in monitoring for and detecting the malware, as opposed to just a platform on which the detection logic is running. We can actually go further more than that. Uh, to make the solution even more entrenched in silicon, we can also execute the detection logic, accelerate it, and make it more efficient and optimum by running within the SOC block itself. For example, on the integrated on-die GPU or any built-in accelerator into the SOC, make the solution fully silicon-bound. Using either of these aspects, whether monitoring SOC data with or accelerating optimizing it within the SOC, either of these concepts can classify the detection solution as silicon-based. Uh, TDT just happens to use both of them. That was a great overview. Now, I'd love to pivot to talk about the specific technologies that both your teams came together to build. Rahul, why don't we keep the conversation going with you for right now? Can you help us better understand how Intel TDT technology functions? Right. So TDT actually stands for Intel Threat Detection Technology. At the core of TDT is the concept of applying machine learning to correlate the telemetry data source directly from the CPU. Which is such as talked about the SOC data that defines silicon-based detection. So that's essentially what TDT is doing. It's uh, sourcing telemetry data from within the CPU, from the performance monitoring unit that's built into all Intel CPUs and uh, applying machine learning to correlate that data and deterministically, deterministically detect uh, computation activity associated with malwares like crypto mining malwares that we talked about earlier. So a malware that exhibits some kind of sustained but repetitive computational sequences, exactly like crypto miners do with repetitive hashing, they tend to leave behind a digital footprint on uh, CPU telemetry, essentially on the SOC as the instruction sequences associated with those hashing operations executed in the CPU, they're uniquely affecting the behavior of certain telemetry events uh, that are being monitored within the CPU. The performance monitoring unit in Intel CPUs, they have hundreds of telemetry events capable of fine-grained measurement of multiple aspects of a process, process's execution. So if hashing is operating repetitively in a certain way, there are performance monitoring events that we can select uh, that uh, behave deterministically as the hashing is executing. And with any form of telemetry, uh, ML is a natural candidate for using for correlation of these events. And then we can classify telemetry records that we're reading from the CPU at runtime and detect which specific process in the OS space seems to be executing these computational activities that we have trained the classifiers for. For example, you can train the classifier to detect the proof of work computation of specific cryptocurrencies and examples could be Monarium, Ethereum, Zcash, even Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin is not that much uh, mined on uh, general purpose CPUs anymore, but it's possible. 
And being CPU telemetry based, TTT can be inherently resistant to OS based obfuscation techniques uh, that uh, we were referring to earlier. Because, I mean, no matter how you are hiding in the operating environment space, you eventually have to execute the code to mine. And that will be executing the CPU. And thus, uh, there will be a digital footprint. TTT can pick up on that. And the other thing we have done is, uh, as you can imagine, machine learning is always computationally intensive and it's uh, done in servers for a good reason. But we have figured out a way to optimize it, take it off the CPU. We don't want the threat detection solution to impede the useful work that the user is doing on the platform. So the classification is all offloaded to the on-die integrated GPU as well to eliminate overhead on the CPU. And this combination of CPU telemetry usage for malware detection and execution and acceleration in the integrated GPU all within the SOC block is what makes TDT a true silicon-based threat detection solution. Thank you, gentlemen. I teased up front that while the blog was back from April 2021, it was initially talking about crypto jacking, that the technology here uh, or the application of that technology has evolved since then. I wondered if we could jump a little bit ahead now to sort of where we are at the beginning of 2022. You know, crypto jacking is obviously, you know, a problem. Uh, this is a, a great solution, though, out there to, you know, as you say, help end users and, and security practitioners and IT teams find crypto jacking when it, when it is occurring. I want to talk about ransomware, but I also want to, you know, ask you sort of more generally, how has this approach, how has the sort of TDT platform or the TDD technology in conjunction with, with Defender what other types of threats have you been able to uh, identify and, and create new sort of detections and, and, and techniques beyond simply crypto jacking? Is ransomware one of them? Uh, if so, can you talk about that? And then any of the other uh, threat types that can now be identified and potentially mitigated with this, with this approach? Yeah, actually, that is really with an interesting journey. And crypto jacking, as you mentioned, is just one possibility. I think we touched about this a little bit earlier, but with CPU telemetry, we have a very unique opportunity here. As I mentioned, if a malware is executing some form of sustained repetitive computational activity, then it opens itself up for the kind of digital footprint that PDT is looking for. Crypto jacking with crypto mining with hashing is just one example. Ransomware, as you mentioned, is a very another natural fit for telemetry, CPU telemetry based detection. Because of course it's uh, running encryption at a sustained pace and repetitive pace. There are of course certain other uh, types of memory and cache based attacks too that are very good candidates. And we are actively researching right now on what kind of detectors detectors are possible. As and when we mature them, we will be announcing them with Defender at some point. But the ransomware right now being the most relevant threat of our times, and of course the one that's most in the news causing the most harm, has been a particular focus for TTT. We have been looking at it for a while now, and we have been able to come up with some good detectors, CPU related detectors for ransomware as well. Really, the possibilities of what is can be detected via technology of TTT is endless. You look at uh, what uh, performance monitoring unit has, there's hundreds and thousands of telemetry events that can monitor hundreds and endless varieties of execution aspects of a particular process. Uh, depending on what the process is doing, we are fairly confident uh, we'll be able to build a model to identify the activity, especially if it's malicious. Gosh, I mean, both of your teams have done so much work to date. And 
In addition to that, you've also generated a ton of telemetry that can further define the progression of the technology and also just better understand the attack environment. So tell us a little bit about that. What have you been learning from those signals? Oh, yes. And as I mentioned, the journey has been very interesting and we are very, very thankful to be with Defender on this. It has enabled us to really improve, understand where the holes are and then figure out how to cover those holes. And But one observation that we have seen from the beginning is, and that's why the advantage of a technology like DDT is its resiliency really to obfuscation techniques uh, in the operating space. Because uh, we're realizing that no matter what the malware does to hide itself, uh, whether through the packing or uh, just a fileless execution, in the end, it is still it still has to run its payload, which means it has to encrypt. And uh, that sequence of instructions will run on the CPU and we'll still be able to pick it up. So that has been a positive realization that uh, regardless of obfuscation in the OS space, uh, in the silicon level, we should still be able to pick it up. But on the other side, we have also learned that uh, that uh, we still have to deal with a lot of noise in a general purpose computing environment, uh, uh, like, uh, like say, an endpoint PC, there's hundreds of processes running. And it's not going to be simple to just pick up the malware activity by itself because the malware is never running just by itself. There's not just never going to be the case that you're just running the malware on the system. There's other useful work happening on the platform. And we need to be able to pick out the malware process uh, from among those hundreds of other processes running. So we have had to really develop techniques so that we can isolate the telemetry associated with the malware from the rest of the rest of the processes and applications running on the platform, and as well as uh, filter out the noise that the other processes are influencing the malware's uh, telemetry with. And so we are still tuning and uh, fine uh, honing those processes, but uh, a lot of uh, advances have been made to the point that we are actually now able to deploy a model on the real world platform and get good results. That's right. So one of the things that we have seen is, you know, the real world workloads are really different from what we get in any software lab. That's where you know, the numbers which Defender have really help in that. You know, when we are deploying it over, you know, hundreds of millions of computers in, in silent mode, we are silently watching the workloads. And, you know, part of it helps that because Defender has other engines which are already mature and well-tuned and can eliminate some of the noise that we get in field. Also, we get the telemetry back from the field, which we can effectively use to train and, and fine-tune the workloads to specifically identify a malware process from a non-malware process. And in the, in the context of you know, either ransomware or even crypto miners or crypto jackers, it is essential to know that since the instructions they execute are not unique to them, and they are used by other applications, for example, you know, Dropbox, before uploading your, your pictures on online, would probably compute the hash of the image file. And those operations are pretty much similar to what malware would do to either compute the hash of it, or you know maybe your encryption software is encrypting your file or, or compressing your file versus the ransomware is also doing the similar kind of activity. And how do you differentiate between these two operations effectively? And like Rahul mentioned, you know, it's, it's about the numbers. The more the, the algorithm sees you know, the, such diverse data sets, it gets to learn from those. And it's called something a supervised learning, where it can you know, segregate the specific malware activity from the non-malware part. Yeah, exactly. And so that's one of the key parts that because we're 
using supervised learning, we are learning the, the behavior of the malware as well as we are learning the behavior of benign workloads and we, the classifier has to kind of draw the right boundaries among them. Sometimes the boundaries are fine and the more data we feed into the supervised learning models or training set, the more fine the boundaries that we can draw around them. So data, of course, is key with ML. And as we keep working with Defender, we keep getting understand which processes kind of overlap more and more into the malware space and be able to figure out how to draw tighter classifier boundaries around those overlaps. We're just coming up on on sort of our time with with the two of you. I wonder if I could leave you with sort of two two final questions. The first, if you could just talk, I mean, you already have, but just in terms of what what sort of is next in this space and for this technology, you know, maybe without giving away uh, too much for any any folks listening that m- might not be on the defender side. But then the second thing is, is there any action here for IT professionals? Is there any action here for security practitioners to ensure that this technology is is turned on and configured correctly and that they're getting the full benefit of it if they have that combination of TDT support in their in their silicon uh, and then uh, obviously the, the Defender, uh, a Microsoft Defender service in some capacity. So I think sort of what's next and then uh, any any actual action items here for folks listening to the podcast and want to make sure this technology and this partnership is is working well for them. So in the future, we would definitely add options to interact with it more. And IT professionals could, could probably use uh, you know, group policies and other means when they come out. But as of now, it's kind of silently monitoring in the background. That's what we have. To answer the question about you know what is next after that, so... Microsoft Defender for Endpoint benefits you know, from the world-class resources who continuously detect threats and new ways of evading threats and, and find new ways to prevent these attacks. So we work very closely with, with uh, you know, the research team who tell us and guide us like what makes sense. And I'm sure Intel does the same. You know, um, they have their own research doing the same thing. And we always partner with our customers and listen to them and uh, how to improve uh, our, our prevention detection techniques, what makes sense for our customers, what is the most relevant thing they want us to work on, and all of that research gets into there. And that's where the collaboration between Microsoft Defender and Park Research Team and Intel's research you know, team is really, really, really critical. Yeah, so, you know, Rahul, maybe you can add more to this. Yeah, and one other thing to note is uh, there's no need to en- enable anything in hardware or even the BIOS to get the capability. It's inherent in the CPU. It's always available and the enablement can be fully software-based. So if Defend, as Matt Ramin was mentioning, that once DDT is integrated with Defender, it can be deployed as a Defender switch. Right now, silently enabled. In the future, it can be uh, option-based. It's all depending on how Defender wants to deploy. But there's no separate enablement necessary from the OEM or the user to get DDT to work as such. And uh, new attack techniques uh, with our collaboration with Microsoft Defender Research, we are working on them actively. Some of the models are being and the detectors being matured right now because we don't announce them before they're matured. But as soon as they're ready, announcements will be made. The partnership with Microsoft Defender is has been for almost three years now, and we are looking forward to many years of collaboration. It has been very key in releasing projecting, and very soon ransomware will be out as well. And uh, multiple more after that. And hopefully next year we'll be talking about the next technology that we have deployed together. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, explaining these sort of new concepts to us and, and helping demystify how these two really fascinating pieces of technology work together. Look forward to talking to you both on another episode of Security Unlocked. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on Afternoon Cyber Tea, friendly hacker Karen Elazari joins me to discuss the hacker mindset, the latest security threat trends, and must-have skills for cyber leaders and practitioners. Be sure to listen in and follow us on AfternoonCyberTea.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.